We're the largest producer in the country. The facilities we have have capacity to do about 400,000 kilos of coffee a, a day. So that would be about a million pounds of, of coffee. That's the cherry. You said a million pounds a day? We've built some kind of world-class infrastructure. We're now at 9,000 acres, have a little bit over 11 and a half million trees. Our sights are set on becoming the largest producer of Arabica coffee in the, in the world. I right, listen up. This is Jamie. And I want to know if you're ready, if you're ready to take control of your life and reach your full potential. Think about that full potential, not maybe I can, but full potential. GoBundance has offered me and offers all of you the systems, tools, collaboration, mentorship, training, accountability, and community that you need to boost your success. With GoBundance membership, you're going to get access to the GoBundance training portal, member masterminds, the GoBundance toolkit, live interactive webinars, trips, private Facebook group access, which is super, super active. Wait till you check out the, the Facebook group. And GoBundance GoPods. My GoPod and I are insanely close. Take your life and business to the next level with GoBundance. Go to GoBundance.com today. Apply for membership. Trust me on this. Have the conversation with me or one of our other ambassadors, and we'll make sure that you're clear on the value proposition for you. Look, you feel like right now, if I invest my money, I don't know what the return is going to be. That's why you're holding it. Better to invest in the one asset that has returned you over and over again, the maximum return, and that's investing in you and the community around you. GoBundance.com. Make sure you apply today. Enjoy the rest of the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today's guest is a returning guest from a little while ago, Adam Jason. He is a partner with Legacy Group, a board member on Green Coffee or for Green Coffee Company, which I'm an investor in. He's also a GoBundance member, a Colombian resident, and most importantly, most importantly, he is a raving Buffalo Bills fan. Adam, welcome, brother. Thank you, Jamie. Those are all correct facts. <laughs> <laughs> also a fellow, you, you married into the Latino. Your wife is Colombian. My wife's Dominican. So you've got that, you got that Latin American uh, culture in your family as well now. So we share a lot. Yes. With yes. Ah, yeah, that's true. Like we're the it, same it, people, but, but I have the smaller Intentionally brain. buzzed. <laughs> intentionally buzzed. <laughs> exactly for everybody out there if you have not done so already go to gobundance.com fill out an application become a member at any level we've got a community for you adam let's get a little backstory you're a buffalo bills fan living in columbia running a coffee company um yes, again you've been on you were on a while ago but uh just give us the the how and where of all of those factors of you sure so i just crossed my five-year anniversary here in, in Colombia, based out of Medellin, Medellin, if you pronounce it without the uh, the correct pronunciation, but uh, been here for five years. My background is as an, a corporate attorney in the U.S. I worked at two of the larger law firms there for about a decade before I came down to Columbia, so specialized in SEC, capital markets, taking companies public, raising money in, in public and, and private markets, really for Fortune 500 companies, Wall Street investment banks on the underwriting side of transactions, working directly with boards of directors, et cetera. So that's from a prof professional standpoint. My path down to Columbia, as I shared with you, last time we chatted, really kind of stemmed from a itch to move into an entrepreneurial role as I got farther along in my corporate America career. 
as as you know, and I know you talk uh, a lot about this. You, know, you get to these pivot points in your career, and in the legal world, it's very much: Are you going to be a partner at the law firm? Are you going to go and work as a general counsel or in-house for one of your clients, for example, or are you going to do something entrepreneurial and kind of and kind of change things completely? I always had that that itch. I could feel it inside of me as I kind of got to, you know, year seven, eight, et cetera, in the law firm. I had, I was working in Dallas at the time. I got a job offer for another firm in Houston and I had a month gap in between the two, the two jobs. So really for the first time in my life, I decided to do some international travel. Had heard some good things about Colombia. wanted the experience of going to another country and actually trying to live there versus just going and spending three days seeing the sites and, and then going to the next place. So kind of, I guess, at a whim, maybe it's fate, who knows, came down here, spent a month, loved it, met my now business partner at, at Legacy Group, uh, who was also the founder of the Green Coffee Company, which we'll, we'll talk, I'm sure, plenty about. And he was at the time starting both our investment firm, Legacy Group, and the Green Coffee Company is really the flagship portfolio company for our business. Everything we do is based on connecting and serving as a bridge, I would say, between U.S.-based investors and Latin American opportunities right now with a focus on Colombia. So he was starting the coffee business. We needed to raise about $6 million to get the business off the ground. And my background as a SEC attorney, you know, when you're, when you're going after working with high net worth investors or credit investors in the U.S., even though the business is operating outside, the same rules, regulations, everything apply. So my, my background was relevant there. Started helping him in my in my free time as I moved to Houston and started the, the new position there at the, at the law firm, spent about 10 months at the firm and I could just feel that desire to, to do something else. So around October, November, 2017, started selling my, selling everything I had. Basically I was living at the time across from a supermarket and I used to meet people in the parking lot that I met on Craigslist to sell them stuff that I, <laughs> I had. So I spent about, you know, a couple of weeks sleeping on an air mattress, came down here to Columbia, January, 2008, 2018 with a book bag. And I still had the travel bag for my golf clubs. I sold the clubs, but kept the bag. So I packed that up then and came down here and, you know, really, I would say, of course, everything kind of involves a good, a good slice of good luck, um, but but really have have been it's been a, a rewarding adventure so far. Very happy now. I have a wife and and family down here, uh, a business that I'm proud of. So that's that's the story. But I yeah, still watch the bills every Sunday. That's <laughs> good play. man, good man, smart man. Um, <laughs> never never in February though. Never in no, February. They I seem know, to be done God. by then. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> this year, this year, I'm hoping yeah. the Andre Hopkins yeah. trade. The Andre Hopkins trade. I'm hoping for it. <laughs> um, for for living in Colombia, I think we talked about this a bit last time. You were talking about the cost of living being very very reasonable. Now since that, yes. I've moved here to the Dominican Republic. Cost yeah. of living is not reasonable, at least not where I live, right? It's not, oh, really? I, I, 
I, yeah, I probably have a 50% increase in my, in my monthly cost of living, right? Like the, wow. the rent, the rent for the house is twice what our mortgage is in, uh, in Michigan. Um, there's an 18% sales tax down here. Gas is $5 a gallon as we sit in March or almost April of 2023. Um, wow. Food is about the same, if not maybe a little bit more. The the thing that's cheap is labor. That you know, we have like seven day a week in home help for under a thousand dollars a month, right? So that's cheap, but the rest is very very expensive. Is it the same in Colombia? Like, there's been an inflationary crisis since then. Like, how's Colombia cost of living today versus uh, when we last spoke? I have to say before I answer the question, I think if anybody watches this on video, if they think if, if you tell them you're speaking to me from the Dominican and me from Colombia, nobody's going to really believe it. We look like the two whitest people. Hastiest <laughs> humans on the planet. Yes. Yeah, agreed. Yes. Um, but yes, I, the, the cost of living here is, is, is sounds much better than, than the Dominican. You know, the, the labor here is, is cheap. As you mentioned, we have the same thing. We have a, a woman who comes and cleans the house for like 10 hours, uh, three times a week. She does the laundry cooks, etc. It's almost so cheap that you feel guilty. Like you right. think we pay her, I think that we pay her like $15 a day. Yeah. At, at this point and and the dollar keeps getting stronger against the peso so every time every day it's it's a little bit um a little bit cheaper so that and then you know we have we have a, a i'd say a beautiful apartment two cars nice life down here and and if, if we spend 50 grand a year between the two of us between my wife and i i, I would be I would be surprised when we're, when we're in country, you know, if we're traveling or, sure. or doing anything like that, but just the day to day, you know, rents probably, if you're just going to rent something, you know, it'd be hard for you to spend $2,000 a month. If you're going to um, buy something, you know, you're talking about penthouse apartments for like $300,000, like wow. great space. We're we're building. It's very popular down here to have an apartment in the city and then a finca or a country home in outside the outside the city. So sure. this year we're under construction right now. It's a uh, we we knocked down the house that's been in my wife's family for about forty years, and we're rebuilding. It'll be about seven bedrooms, five baths, and I think all in we're looking at spending about a hundred thousand so wow, it's, it's just uh it's just crazy you can have a really great life here and if you're earning in dollars it, it just goes so far it's it's um it's fun and and i think that the you know it's not one of those situations where okay everything's cheap but but life kind of stinks you know there's plenty to do very very uh international flair you can be at the beach in an hour, you can be in the mountains where I am. You can go to Bogota, which is pretty international. If you're looking for kind of the best restaurants that the country has to offer, just a whole host of opportunities that are available for a, a pretty, a pretty good price. And it's still, you know, a three hour, a three hour flight from Miami. My, my wife's or my brother-in-law likes to tell people that he has a country home that's three hours from Miami, but it's actually in, in Columbia. So <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Same. We're about yeah. a two, two and a half hour flight from Miami. And, and in fairness, we did choose, we did choose to live in sort of like the premier area of the premier oh, 
section of the country. And we, you know, with the kids, we had a four bedroom home, we got something a little bigger and all that stuff. So um, we could, we could reduce our cost of living, uh, I suppose. But when you said 50,000 for the year, that's our rent for the year, 48, 48 grand for just rent for the year. So wow. it's, uh, it does add up, but either way. Yeah. And you're right, yeah. man. Like I look at it. Like there's no tan, not for me at least, right? Like there's no tan or the lights are muting whatever minuscule tan that I have, but it's like, I can't, like I'm, I'm pasty white. Like I have to cover up. Otherwise I don't just, I don't like bronze nicely. I just light up in flames. Uh, I thought about doing this without the lights on just to avoid (laughs) unnecessary reflections and, (laughs) but they're here. Whatever yeah, we're here. Whatever. All right. So let's talk about coffee, Colombian coffee. Right. Everyone, everyone hears Colombian coffee. It's actually, is it the second, the country with the second largest production of coffee in the world? Not the first. It'd be the third largest. What are the other two? Brazil, Vietnam, Brazil, Vietnam. Brazil's, yeah. about, Brazil's about 50%. Vietnam's about 20%. Colombia is about 10, 10 to 14. Okay. And when we spoke last, Green Coffee Company was on the brink of becoming the number one coffee company in the U.S., in the U.S., in Colombia, in the country of Colombia. Yes. Um, I know that's changed. So I want to talk about yes. that. But can yeah. you give a sense of what exactly the business, like coffee's coffee, like what, what is it? What's Green Coffee Company doing? Why is it green coffee? Is it all like green, the whole energy thing? Like, what, Give an idea of the business of green coffee and how it's how it's come together and where it is today. Sure. So the business, Green Coffee Company, we started it back in 2017 as really a alternative to commercial real estate for investors who are already comfortable in Colombia. So we had probably, I don't know, a database of a couple hundred, couple hundred folks who were familiar with the market, had invested in some short-term rental properties here, commercial real estate, et cetera, but wanted something that was I'd say an alternative in the sense that you have a lot of assets. So there's the collateral there, something that can cash flow for investors. Uh, they, they like, you know, hard, hard assets. So the idea initially was consolidate farms, consolidate infrastructure, consolidation basically through purchases of farms from large Fam, families that you have generational turnover and they, they pass the, the farms down through generations. And then eventually you get to the great, great grandson who wants to you know live in the US and, and not be a coffee farmer. So these opportunities become available. Um, but what we really saw as we, as we dove more into the market and we were participating. So that was back in 2017, we started with about 600 acres uh, $6 million started, you know, redoing the infrastructure and kind of building a business the, the market here in coffee, what, what we saw is it's the national product of the country, third largest producer globally, everybody, everybody who drinks coffee can, can relate Columbia to, to coffee, but the lack of investment in the industry has really extended for call it 40 years without it without exaggeration you also have a very decentralized structure where 95 percent of all the farmers own three acres or less so kind of call it fresh eyes fresh capital a different way of looking at the market we saw the chance to have something beyond just a 
asset play, you know, that, that alternative to commercial real estate and really create an enterprise around the industry. So kind of where we've gone from that initial 600 acres, we closed up two acquisitions last week. We're now at 9,000 acres. Uh, we have we have a little bit over a, a 11 and a half million trees. We're the largest producer in the country. When you and I talked, we were at, we were at the number three position about a year and a half ago. So we've grown exponentially since then. We had 11 farms that we were owning at the time. And now I think we're up to 39. Wow. Uh, we've built some kind of world-class infrastructure around the operation. And now we're looking at okay, how do we really grow this thing into a monster? You know, the, 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 our, our sights are set on becoming the largest producer of Arabica coffee in the, in the world. We could talk about kind of what that means, Arabica versus Robusta, but- Wait, 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 wait. Oh, it's Arabica, not Arabica? I, I, it goes back to that Medellin, Medellin. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, um, I've heard TV commercials that say Arabica. I'm going with Arabica. Yeah. But go they ahead. know their audience. <laughs> True. <laughs> they know their audience. So, um, yeah. You know, so you're going to become the number one Arabica, Arabica bean producer in the world. That's the, that's the that's, objective. And Arabica, that's the next goal. And that's, is that the bean, is that the, pro, like the most popular bean? I don't know anything about coffee. So. <laughs> Actually the most, the most, you have basically two strands globally, Robusta and Arabica, Arabica. Robusta is the crappy stuff that comes from Brazil. It's like your Maxwell House, hmm. Folgers Coffee of the world. Um, usually a very high caffeine content, but usually something you got to put milk and sugar in to be able to consume oh. and and enjoy. So that's the the low end. That's the low end coffee, and it essentially kind of grows like a weed. Arabica is kind of the more, I would say, higher quality coffee. It's any anything globally that's kind of winning awards for quality. And and Colombia is, you know, almost all Arabica. So these different countries. So, so if, if you talk about kind of where does it rank globally, it's number two in terms of Arabica, number three in terms of, of coffee overall. Hmm. Um, so the largest producers right now of Arabica are in Brazil. They have all the information we can, can gather is that they have a little bit over 5,000 active hectares, uh, which is about each hectare is about 2.2 acres. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're getting close. We're getting close. It's something we can achieve in the next two years, I think. Uh, and we're getting kind of more and more opportunities to buy as, as, our name becomes more well well known in the market. It was it was not like that at the beginning. Before it was knocking on doors, trying to buy farms from, you know, usually it's their family owned. So it'll be five uncles, three cousins. They all have to agree on the price. It's it's a diff. We're 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 kind of in a different in a different realm now. I would it's it's gotten easier. Of course, new challenges present as we kind of look to the other side of the business and how do we scale and these other things. But from an acquisition standpoint, uh, we're fortunate to have you know, a great investor base that keeps kind of providing the capital and the business itself putting capital back in to, to grow. But we want to get that that dominant market position in, in Colombia and Arabica 
a relative coffee. Uh, I, okay. As I wrote a couple <laughs> things down because I want to do this aside and then we'll come back to it. But it is funny. Two bald, pasty dudes from upstate New York. Uh, both Bills fans, Bills Mafia. If anybody knows, like we're jumping yes. through tables and shit. And here we are talking yeah. about, you know, the cultured, how cultured yeah, we are yeah. living in other countries. But on that right. point, like I hear people say like, oh, I'm going to be down in like Punta Cana. I'm like, oh God, it just, it hurts to hear it. Like Punta Cana, right? Like there's a yes. way to say. So you do yeah. get, you do get comfortable. I'll, I won't forget this. I, my wife, it drives her nuts whenever I tell the story, but there was some Southern lady at a resort recently we like we went to a resort for one of the kids were off <laughs> oh my god she yeah. goes up to the bar like the swim up bar at this all-inclusive resort and she's speaking spanish to the guy like i forget i think his name was sergio behind the behind the bar and it was like um uh un margarita poor favor sergio yeah. and poor sergio Painful. just had to be like wow your spanish is so good <laughs> yeah oh my god you know it, it was sound really like we sound like that wasn't us just a short time ago. You know, right. it, it's like, you know, like now a couple of years in, you're like, oh, that sounds horrible. That's ridiculous. Like a few years ago, I'd be like, you, you sound like that. And I probably 100%. still do when I'm. <laughs> no, 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 100%. That's my point. Like, it's funny how your your context expands and it shifts. Right? Yes. Like when you said Arabica, it's like, okay, that's the way to say it. That's the phrase. That's what you're around. That's the actual thing. But right. we've Americanized it to Arabica. So for me, yes. not hearing that all the time. It sounds silly, just like listening right. to this lady now use right. this terrible, like Englishized Spanish with a southern accent. <laughs> yeah, oh, I know. Awful, it's... awful. <laughs> anyway, but you're right. We were the same not that long ago. I, I, yes, I like grew up with the the being cultured for sure. <laughs> I want to ask about this. So you mentioned about infrastructure efficiencies, and and I don't know how this will relate, but I I mean when we drive around here, uh, a lot of sugar. Um, uh, yeah. fields, right? Sugar's a big, a big crop here. It's a big export. Um, right. and you see like these massive fields, which you would think, oh, the equipment that they're going to run through here to chop this down. It's like, no, it's guys with machetes kind of thing. Right. Right. And I always think about it. Like in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, how much more efficiently this could be run with a sense of an infrastructure or operational thought behind it. Right. But at the same yeah. time, labor is super, super cheap. So, right. What I'm picturing of what you've described, and I've heard this a couple of times, is you've got all these like one-off farms, like owned by mom and pop owners for years, right? A few acres here, a few acres yeah. there, and you've consolidated that to nine thousand acres of coffee company of coffee uh, uh, productive land to produce coffee, right? With eleven million trees on it, or whatever. Now these aren't all like in one big nice area; like they're spread out, right? These are a little here, a little there. Correct. We, we basically consolidate around. You have whole towns here that are coffee towns. Yep. So basically, it's you establish a nexus in an area that's famous for coffee. Why? Usually, it's already growing there, too. The town population is used to that, that, that industry. So they know that you, know, you have good, good labor pools <clears throat> in those markets because they know that industry. And then we'll grow out from there. But everything is around having basically consolidated processing infrastructure. So the town where we first started here is a town called Salgar. It's about two hours south of, of Medellin, where I'm talking to you from now. Famous coffee town, you know, basically a monocrop town. We started with acquisitions there. And it's basically like, all right, we want to try and buy essentially this, this whole town. So just these last four months or so, we've started out expanding outside of the, the town. 
but you want to still be close enough to your processing infrastructure where you can bring the crop until you have that next processing facility. So it's about consolidation of infrastructure. Uh, the farms that we have, I'd say from one to the next, the greatest distance is probably about an hour, but we try to make them as contiguous as, as possible. It would be the same theory as, you know, if you buy 10 Airbnbs, you don't want them spread all over the place. You know, you want them and make it easier from a logistics standpoint. So we try to do the same with with farms. We 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 only are really buying like basically 200 acre size tranches of of land or above. Uh, so we we don't buy usually from the small three acre farmers. Uh, I say usually, I mean basically never at all. It'll be these big land holding families that typically yeah. have that generational turnover or all their their family wealth is tied up in the land and there's no way to tap Extract into it. any of that equity. Yeah, there's no yeah. like, oh, I'm gonna go to the bank and refinance it. It's just not the same, not the same situation. And then what we've been able to do in coffee is really a lot of the, the infrastructure and technological development is based around the, the processing. So all the quality determinants for coffee are gonna be, you know, is it a consistent size? Is it free of defects? Are things appropriately ripe? So you're, it's it's like the, um, you know, you're making orange juice and you put one, one unripe orange in and completely change the flavor. Coffee's yeah. very similar, but from a, as you mentioned with the with the sugar cane and the, and the machetes, you know, if you come down to Colombia and see a coffee farm, almost all the coffee here grows like literally on the sides of of mountains. So technology is not there yet, where you know you could run a tractor up the side of the mountain and only pick the good stuff. You also have the dynamic of ripe beans growing next to unripe beans. So one red one, which means they're ripe versus a green one, you know, it kind of takes an eye at this point to pick those off the tree. If you go to a big coffee farm in Brazil, you'll see mechanized tractors passing through, but they're not as quality dependent. They just want to get the coffee off the tree. You now playing in the quality space and uh, Arabica versus uh, Robusta, everything, essentially the point is everything from a uh, collection standpoint is still very, very manual. I, I think there's a big opportunity to try and, and, and fix that, you know, whether it's through drone technology that actually does the collecting or the issue you have is, you know, imagine you, you, you're on the side of a mountain, you pick a hundred pound bag of coffee and you have to carry it to the silo where all the collection is done. You know, there's a tre tremendous amount of wasted effort and time in that transportation process. So drones that can, you know, call it um, kind of come pick up, take the coffee bag, dump it off. The drone comes back, you load it back up again. Something wow. like that could be a big uh, efficiency, but the technology is... How close is that? It's is not there yet. I mean, the drones are there. Something that could actually... Um, you know, carry that um, yeah. amount of weight, I don't think is impossible to do. Um, so we're just kind of keeping our eyes on it, but it's something that has to get solved, I think, in in um, in the not too distant future. What I imagine what you're seeing in, in the Dominican 
in, in sugar is not dissimilar from here where, you know, as people think more about moving to cities and there's more opportunities in the kind of uh, mine worker space, you have less and less people who want to stay in the field, work in the farms, you know, so a big part of our strategic kind of build out of the business is making sure we still have those those labor pools because you can have all the land and all the coffee in the world, but if you don't have people to go pick it, or you don't have the guys with the machetes to cut down the sugar, you know, it's, it's not worth very much to you. So labor in agriculture is, is going to be a, I think a big, a big focus, either, either making it more attractive for labor to continue in the industry or you know, supplementing it or replacing it with, with technology is kind of the only way to go. Makes sense. Okay. Um, well, that answered my question. Cause I was thinking about it, like I'm picturing all of this. So you're, you're, you're purchasing in as much as you can contiguous spots and then leveraging technology. So, or leveraging that technology for the processing. So yes. um, to your point, it, it, what, so you buy a farm, a 200 acre farm, that's generationally owned. They obviously have a system and a process for things. What's the difference between how they were processing versus what you're doing with processing? Like where's the economies of scale or the leverage that you get um, or the efficiency that you gain? Compare that for me. I just want to get a sense of mom and pop processor with a decent sized farm. I'm sure they have a, a system versus your processing. Yeah, I would say there's differences um, all the way from from typically all the way from kind of start to finish. So you'll have different fertilization practices. You know, if you don't have access to capital, maybe you're only fertilizing once a year mm-hmm. or you don't have kind of the, that, that mapped out. You know, we try to fertilize four to five times a year to make sure that coffee is, is kind of in the position it needs to be. We have professional agronomists on the team. If, if you're a, if you're a, a family, in, in most cases, they're not going to have a trained agronomist. It's going to be what did you kind of learn through being in the in the industry, you know. So that that planting, how, what's the right density to have for optimal growth? Uh, how do you monitor humidity levels? How do you control for insects? Just all these things that go into the actual growing of the plant. You then have a. As I said, like if you, if you go to the typical coffee farm, the processing facility is going to be put everything all into one machine, take off the take off the pulp, put everything through the processing, no matter what the size is, what the color is, what the maturity is. So you get a lot of defects if you don't have the right technology, if you don't have the right processing capabilities. That's very typical if you've built the technology 40 40 years ago, a lot of it'll be like people literally with hand cranks that depulp the the coffee cherries. The team we have and that we've built, our CEO, our COO, those guys are all agro-industrial engineers. They've brought technology over really from the olive industry uh, to be used for our coffee cherry sorting, depulping, et cetera, which We'll talk about kind of the benefit of having that that byproduct and that leftover, but you know, to, to basically extract the bean and not destroy the skin, but also to be able to sort correctly by by size, weight, all these things that going into establishing the right the right quality, which mm-hmm. of course has a different different price point 
in the market. Makes sense. What's the volume of production today? Like, I don't know, bags per day, revenue, whatever numbers you want to, you want to share, but give me an idea of like, what are you cranking out? Yeah, the facilities we have have capacity to do about 400,000 kilos of, of coffee a, a day. So, uh, and that's the, that's the cherry. So that would be about a million pounds of, of coffee. If you're, what, if you're what is that? What's a million capacity? pounds of coffee? Can you quantify that? Just so I, I mean, that sounds like a lot, but is that like, um, I don't know, like how much does Starbucks do a year? You know what I mean? Like, can you just give me kind of a, a, a reference point to have an understanding of, you said a million pounds a day. That's the capacity of the coffee cherry. So it's kind of technical, but basically after every cherry you take off the tree, coffee grows just like the fruit cherries that you're used to. About 80% of it is the pulp, et cetera. So you, you, the seed, it makes up 20%. So, you know, when you get it down to the seed, you're talking about 200,000 pounds of, of actual uh, coffee seed per day. Okay. All right. And yeah. any sense, like, what is that? What's 200,000 pounds of coffee in comparison to, like, how much does the U.S., well, you know, I don't know if you know the, I don't I'm, I don't expect you to know it, but like, I can even yeah. Google it, but like, what, what is the amount of coffee, like, consumed in a, in a day? in the u.s or something like that do you have any idea Glo globally i know it's it's about two billion cups per day are are consumed you probably to make a cup of coffee like if you just buy if you go to the store and you buy a bag of, of starbucks ground coffee at the supermarket you could probably get you know depending on how kind of thick you want it let's say you get like 40 cups of of coffee from that from that bag, you know, it's very little coffee that goes into each, into each cup. I mean, each, each like you use a K pot or whatever, that's, that's the amount of, of coffee you're using. So, you know, if you were to translate that, like for, for example, if when we become the, the largest in, in the, in the world in Arabica, we'll be, we'll be providing, you know, less than 5% of all the global coffee. The market is just, no, just huge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the context I was looking for. What, what does yeah. that look like? What's the so this? I mean, the market is massive. I, I see two billion That's cups of coffee. Did you know that tea is three point seven billion cups a day? I didn't know that. Is that true? It's all the, what, the all the Asian countries. Google says it, so it must be. Yeah, China's a huge population. India, huge population, right? So it makes sense. But, yeah. Um, yeah. but wow, that's interesting. Okay, that gives yeah. me a sense of it. All right, the pulp. The cherry. Yeah. So and again, yeah. I've never looked at a coffee bean, so I don't even, I didn't even know it's like this big thing, uh, whatever. I don't know if the right size with a little bean inside. Right. So like mm -hmm. what happens, what has happened historically with the cherry? And I don't know. I, I think you're doing some stuff like, give me, give me some context on the cherry. Is there any use to it? Yeah. The history of it is you take out the bean, the coffee and, and all the other stuff is either left to rot thrown in the water some people try to use it as as fertilizer because it has you know sugars proteins these kinds of things but you know if it were an effective fertilizer people wouldn't be buying fertilizer they would just be using the the coffee cherries to fertilize their their farm so it's 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 essentially been garbage for you know the entire history of of coffee wow but nobody's really taken at, at scale and there's some small 
some small operations that are looking into it. But basically, you know, the the all of that product between the, the sugars, the proteins, the antioxidants, everything that's contained in that fruit can be used for other byproducts. So what we what we've been looking at for a couple of years now is wow, we have tons, we have tons of this excess. You know, if, if we're gonna try and do 50 million pounds of coffee, we're gonna have 200 million pounds of, of this, this leftover, you know, call it the coffee cherry. So what do we do with this? So there's been some research studies that were done in Germany, some in the US at Cornell. Like what, what, is, what are some appropriate applications um, to basically turn all of this garbage into some, some consumer products or, or used for energy, et cetera. What we've seen to be the most effective from a price standpoint is to turn all of that, um, all that, that sugar that's contained in the coffee cherries into ethanol. Ethanol can be used for energy creation it can be used in food grade products, but it, it's also the, the base for vodkas, gins, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing at the farms right now, we, we already have the test distillery at the farm there that can do about 120 or 10, it'll, it'll, the end product will be 10 liters a day. But our, our thesis is let's take all this garbage and turn it into revenue for the business and create vodkas, gin, spirits from the, from the sugars that are in the coffee cherry. So the facility that we're building right now, the distillery will be capable of processing about 12 or creating about 12,000 liters of pure ethanol per day. So if you, if you, wow. if you put water into that to create vodka, which, you know, people think vodka is like something super special. It's, it's really just ethanol with distilled, distilled water. To dilute it down, um, that'll create about thirty-eight thousand bottles of vodka per day when we're operating it at full capacity. So you have the opportunity to, as a, in a worst-case scenario, sell it to the energy companies. Mm -hmm. In a mid, mid, in a mid-tier scenario, sell it to the other alcohol producers in the country so they can create their own products, or internationally, you know, we can export it. The other one is go closer to the consumer, which is always kind of where the, the more money is to be made and create products uh, like a vodka or gin, these different spirits that people are consuming. So that's that's the next big investment. It comes out of a need. Uh, you know, it's actually a cost for us to, to try and get rid of all of this raw material. Uh, but also, you know, the, the margins on, on a bottle of vodka created from essentially waste product you know, we're talking about 80 to 90 uh, percent from from something like that, where you're only paying for bot bottling costs and, and shipping. So that's the idea is make every cherry, every coffee cherry that we take off the tree worth more money by using everything that it that it contains. Is it not more cost effective just to sell it to an existing vodka or gin producer? I'm just thinking because you also have to market it then, don't you? If you're going to do you it yourself, to, yeah, I, I would say if, if you're selling it, you know, as a call it a, a food grade product, probably looking at like a, a four dollar per gallon price in in that area. You know, our kind of 
projections or what we're looking to do uh, with with our own vodka is eight dollars per bottle wholesale. So that's seven hundred fifty milliliters under a, under a liter. So just a huge a huge difference. But but what I expect to see is we're going to have so much product that it's going to take time to build a market for the for the vodka. Like you said, you have to market it. You have to get it out there. It'll take some time to do that. For for some time, I think some of the ethanol will be selling to for for energy creation. You know, ethanol uh, has a history of, of, of for for basically using gasoline in in the U.S. Mm. Uh, but but using that ethanol for energy creation without what I don't want to do is give somebody else the story that we're creating by giving being a supplier for them for their own product that they're going to create and and turn into a, a vodka. You know, I mean, I don't want to build competitors for us by by giving them the raw materials because. If nobody else is doing it at scale and they, the, the supply becomes integral, you know, we want to be, we want to keep that supply to ourselves. For anybody else to do this, they're going to have to invest in the distillery. They have to kind of create what we're already in the process of creating. We don't, we don't want to give that away. So it'll be a, a growth of the, of the vodka business while we're using that, that ethanol for other sources that don't create competition for the products we're trying to create. All right. We've talked a lot about our similarities. This is where I'm going to distinguish us as you having a much bigger brain than me. So let me, let me just make sure, I under, let me make sure I understand <laughs> this part. So if you take the raw product and sell yeah. it to an existing distillery, somebody who's going to produce vodka with it or whatever. You're saying you get $4 per gallon. Is it, did I get that right? $4 per gallon for, for that. That's, that's what we're seeing. Yeah. Okay. But if you do it, bottle it up yourself and ship, you get $8 per gallon, correct? It, it would be $8 per uh, 750 mil. Let's just make it liters. So four liters in a gallon. So it'd be $32 uh, 32, $32 for that same gallon. If we sell it as, oh, as a okay. wholesale so vodka. It's eight times, eight times the income. If you sell the vodka yourself. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. That, that makes more exactly. sense. Like said, but aren't there, aren't there, um, back end production costs that dilute that I thought it was four to $8. I'm like, isn't that four, isn't that $4 difference eaten up by the fact that you got to now create and produce and bottle and do it, but you're talking $32 for a gallon if yes. you produce and create it yourself. So yeah, there's probably some, there's some, there's, it gets eaten away between four and 32, but it's still a massive profit potential. And is that all, is that another company? Is that all part of green coffee from a top line revenue perspective? Yeah, it'll be a subsidiary. We keep it separate for licensing purposes. You know, the, the, the liquor industry has its whole realm of, of regulations and, and you can't have the intermingling, but like all of our investors in the in the coffee business own own the the vodka business. That's you. Me? <laughs> yes, so sir. I get a piece yeah, of it. It's all part awesome. of the same. Yes, sir. I keep going then. Yes, keep sir. doing do keep yes, doing sir. what you're doing. Um what was I going to say to you about, oh, well, one question is why, well, let me ask this, is this um, uh, like patented, this process? Like could, once you do this, can it be duplicated by other, by other uh, coffee companies or is it a licensable 
or whatever uh, process? Like, how does that work? Is it just something like, no, you know, it's it's a technology that's out there. A company's going to sell it to all the coffee companies. You being one of them, it's just it just it just beefs up, uh, you know, your revenue as a result of being able to bolt on this other business. Yeah, somebody from what we've seen, it's it's not it's not something that you can get a a patent over just the, the, the vodka creation. Um, that said, you know, we've seen, we've seen the potential to like all the research studies that have been done, you know, we can potentially tie on to some of the patents around like the actual process that goes into it, but not like the idea of creating, of creating vodka. But I think the one, the one barrier to entry is, if you want to do it at scale, you need to have a lot of coffee farms and you need to have a lot of, I, I guess, fast moving infrastructure. Because once you separate the, the, the bean and the cherry, it starts to rot immediately. You basically have 24 hours to turn it into ethanol. Otherwise, it's it's no good. So you have to have somebody who's built the infrastructure around it, understands the process, has built the processing uh, capability where they're actually like, preserving the cherry in in the process of kind of separating it from the from the bean. So I'd say there's barriers to entry there, but it, but it'll definitely be like we, we want to get to market fast and and have the the story. I think you know because we're looking at that consumer facing model for the for the the vodka specifically you know it's going to be important that we know that go to market tell the story the latin america connection i i don't think people I, I think it'll have a stronger brand resonance than you know if a vietnamese company wanted to do it for example it's, it's going to be i guess a little bit less symbiotic between the the product and the country versus coffee and explain and, that a little bit i'm not sure I'm clear on that. why is that yeah, I mean, like like we started with, I think everybody can associate in their minds coffee with Colombia. I think there's an audience around like uh, very um, national pride, but Latin pride around products coming from the, from the region that we can tap into. I think you know you see a huge Hispanic base in the in the U.S. right now that they they tend towards those products that come from from Latin America. So I think that's the audience that we're going to be looking for, as well as selling in country. Right now, there's not a single national vodka or gin product in Colombia, so mm, we can sense. kind of separate ourselves, our, separate ourselves there. But if you saw, you know, a vodka on a shelf, and the story was, oh, this came from coffee cherries in Vietnam, I, I don't know if there'd be that connection, you know, from the, from the consumer. Yeah, I agree. That makes sense. So, and, and this is again, comparison of brain size. So I want to make sure I clearly understand this. So there is a, there is a process that's been developed or being developed uh, in order to convert what used to be waste into something usable. So in your case, you're yes. thinking of, of doing it this way, um, yes. but it's, but it's not exclusive to the first company that gets. So, so green, green coffee starts leveraging this process. So can whatever green coffee company exists in Vietnam, in Brazil, in any country that produces coffee, correct? So like anyone can use this process, but you feel as though what first to market and marketing from, from uh, a Latin American country is more attractive to the end consumer or is more attractive to the people that are putting this process together to invest their time and energy with? 
to do this. I think more attract more attractive to the to the end consumer. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Got it. But yeah, I mean it's it's like bourbon companies, right? Like there's nobody that has a a patent over the process of creating bourbon, but it becomes if, if you're looking and if you're playing in the alcohol space, it becomes a a, a marketing who wins the marketing race? The yeah. good thing for us, the good thing for us is, you know, you start a bourbon company, you got to pay for all the the raw materials. You got to have somebody create the bourbon for you. You know, for us, if we can, if we can turn the waste into anything, we, mm. we've won. Yeah. And you know? so it's, it's a, uh, again, it's, it's, we got to do something with it. <laughs> let's yeah. try to make, let's try to make money with it. The worst thing that happens is we sell it as, as energy. energy. Yeah. Yeah. Sell it for, for fuel creation. But that's our, that's our downside there. We're talking about probably right now that, that would be traded like a, a commodity. So you're looking at like $2 a, a gallon. Mm. Yeah. But now it's just pretty much an expense, a full, like you said, it's a full on expense just to, to deal with the waste. And now you can actually yes. generate something all the yes. way up to, wow. Wow, a vodka company. Interesting. I love it, man. That's yes. that's incredible. Okay. Trying to be innovative. Yeah. Well, now you are being innovative, right? It's uh yeah. it's beyond that. So okay. What um what is the so you said you're going for uh the number one Arabica bean uh to be the number one Arabica bean con- uh, company in the world at this point. Yes. What's the so that's that's a how far out before you think that happens and what's the next step? Is it continuing with the process of you know, growing the size and the amount of trees that you have in production within, within green coffee. Is there another big step that needs to come? Like how long before you see yourselves being able to be the number one Arabica bean company in the world? And what's like the next big milestone that needs to happen for that to happen? I think we could do it in the next two years. Wow. No shit. Yeah. 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 It'll be, I mean, we're getting acquisitions every day. Like I told you, when we, when we talked, a year and a half ago, we were at like 2,300 acres. Now we're at 9,000. If we can double that again, we're, we're right there. We're right mm. there in that in that wheelhouse. We're looking at acquisitions now. I bet you by the time this podcast goes out, we'll have finished another three farming acquisitions. Are you hitting a point of saturation in that regard in Colombia, being that you're looking for contiguous or fairly close? Like you won't, I mean, you, you know, you can't once at a certain point, you can't just double and triple forever. Right. So like, are you reaching that or is there still like massive, massive growth potential within the country? Yeah. I mean, if we get to the the largest Arabica producer in the, in, in the, in the world, we'll be like looking at from our own production, less than 5% of all the coffee coming out of Colombia. We also do a lot of buy of, of coffee from other farmers around us that we can include in our production. And you're essentially flipping it for a higher price. <clears throat> you know, if, if we if we are uh, basically one for one between coffee we're producing and coffee we're buying, you know, that we'd probably be in the range of 10% of all of the coffee in Colombia. And that would be like one 1% of all the coffee that's getting sold globally. So a long way of saying there's a lot, there's a lot left to buy. There's, I would say a limited number of, of um, in some ways, a limited number of counterparties that we want to, that we want to work with because we don't want to be buying like those three hectare farms that we're talking about. 
but you know we're still we have a roadmap of farms that are available to easily get us to that number one spot if we execute on those with with more left to go so we're not running out of of options once we get to a certain scale i think it'll be more important to have the uh a lot of the buying operations going on where we're working with the smaller farmers because then you don't have to make the investment but you still get the the production how are you able to acquire like what's the ratio like so if you target 100 farms how many do you buy right now people just call us and tell us they want to sell their farms so we're why do they want is it just what you said before they're just hey look i'm sitting on this I'm, I'm asset rich, cash poor. I want out. I see what you're doing. You're starting to yes. already, you know, put too much pressure on me as it is. So take it and give me a windfall. Is that essentially what they're saying? It really is. Yeah. People hear that there's a buyer. There's never been a buyer at scale in the market for you know, an extended period of time. And they see it as a potential, they see it as a potential opportunity. I, I do think though, and it's a popular question we get from investors is well, why doesn't Starbucks or Nestle one of these that was my next question come, um, and just <laughs> and just pour money on it yeah it's one there's you know this from being in Latin America yeah so much of what deals you can get done is just having tr building trust people have to know because you worked with a family member of theirs that you're somebody of your word and you're going to complete a transaction there's there's that part of it too but then, you know, it, it just takes a hands-on approach um, to, to be doing these deals. And we're working in a space where I think um, the deals that we're doing are still of interest to us that wouldn't be interested, wouldn't be interesting for Nestle, right? Like they have a huge balance sheet. Their balance sheet is probably the size of, 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 of nations in terms of the money that they would have, the cash that they would have on hand to deploy, you know, they're not going to go farm to farm and, and buy a hundred acres or whatever here in, in Colombia and try and consolidate more likely they would say, all right, you guys have built this for us. Let, let us buy, buy it. Buy. Yep. Buy I just wrote that from, down from you. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I was writing that down so as a question. Yeah. That's the play. And then you don't have any domestic, you really don't have any domestic, um, competition here from oh, okay, there's another local buyer who's who's buying. Now the the second largest producer in the country, uh, we, we're now two times their size, and they're not looking to to buy anymore. They're becoming kind of a acquisition target for. I was going to ask for that, us. Yeah. yeah, you're going to so, so you, don't, mean, you could buy number two, and and that could be a, a big problem solved as far as like growth yes. toward what you're trying to do. Yes. Yeah. And that, that would add a big a big chunk of land to the to the operation. So you just don't see a lot of competition. Uh, so when the when the opportunity comes, you know people are eager to to sell. And and honestly, cash in in um, less developed markets uh, really having cash on hand goes a long way. You know, you, you uh, it wouldn't be atypical here to to have a, a negotiation for farms where it's okay, Jamie, I'll buy your farm, but I'm going to give you uh, two apartments, a tractor, uh, an old car, you know, th these deals just don't come together like you'd be used to if you're buying commercial real estate in, in Miami. It's yeah. not, you know, Blackstone down here uh, operating. So it'll be, 
you know, we got cash. We're, 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 we have we have a big pool of foreign investment coming in. These guys are willing to sell for, I'd say, really outstanding pricing uh, because because we're a cash buyer. So I, I think this year alone, we have to do independent third-party valuations for our annual audit. This year, we paid about three and a half million under under market price for the the farms that we that we bought. Wow. So okay. we're not, you know, it's not like we're we're overpaying to to capture a market share. It's it's there's a lot of willing buyers. The uh, the point real quick, I, I wrote down a couple of questions to remember, but the point real quick you made about about um, how business is done in Latin America, it yeah. resonates with me. It resonates with yeah. me because I've said this before, and you're you're kind of giving me a little bit of um, clarity on on what I, you know my my um, my uh, the phrases I've used before. But it's like it, where I live, where you live, I'm sure it's the same. Like people think like, oh, the electric goes out, plumbing doesn't work. It's like no, no, in, infrastructure wise, at least for me, it's all you know, develop. We don't lose electric, right. we have good Wi-Fi, there's cell service, you know, I mean? it's all, it's right. all there, but right. societally it operates more like 1980s or 1990s did in the U S I feel like there's like a 30 year cultural lag in that regard. And here's what I mean. When we were renting this house, um, yeah. my, my wife's aunt was the broker. The guy mm -hmm. renting it was a friend of her uncle's, right? So it was like right. very, very much like we found the house through like the friend of a friend. It wasn't like there was a sign out front or anything like that, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember I remember being so annoyed on a Saturday because we were Airbnb for like four or five weeks while we found our permanent place and we ended up finding this place. And it was like, oh, great. We're going over to the house to meet and do all the stuff on Saturday. And, you know, we got to get the kids up together and bring them all over. So I'm like, cool. We're going to sign leases, do wires and all of that. But it was more like, no, we're sitting down and having coffee. I'm like, why uh, the fuck am I here? Right? Like you're wasting yeah. my time in my in yeah. my US mindset. Like, I'm here to do business and get shit done. I got places to be, but that was no one had to be anywhere, right? It was more no. about do they feel comfortable with me? How do I come across my wife? You know, having a cup of coffee. To your point, it, it's very much more about about the handshake meaning something. Uh, uh what's that Jerry Maguire? Like my handshake is strong as oak, right? And even uh -huh. as another aside, in Detroit, there's a there's a, a restaurant called the Whitney, which which was um, uh, the Whitney family, a big construction family from the from the turn of the century, built this massive home in Detroit, beautiful when Detroit was like you know one of the top uh, uh, markets in the country, and there's a room in that house that's like the handshake room where where deals were made, not like wow. ironing it out and attorneys are getting together, but like shake hands, and that's very no, much how quiet. I see business done here. So to your point, it makes sense to me. Like, why doesn't Nestle come in? Why doesn't one of these uh, Starbucks come in and just start doing this? It's like, it's just done differently in a Latin American country. And you've cornered that. Now, the follow-up question I had after all that ramble yeah. was, what is the exit plan? Is it to sell to Nestle? Is it to go public? Is it one of the two you haven't decided yet? Like, what's the exit? Or is it just continue to grow and become, you know, a huge, I don't know. What's the exit plan? We set the business up from, I'd say, the beginning to have that that dual track possibility. So people hear Colombia, but everything is structured out of the U.S. So we have a Delaware holding company where all the investment comes in. The Delaware holding company owns the operations here in Colombia for investors. It's the same as like you're owning shares in, in Apple, right? And we wanted to make it attractive for 
a potential sale so that somebody's not buying you know Colombian entities directly that are not familiar with it, et cetera. Or that's, I'd say, more reputable on a public market like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. My experience um, in this world as an attorney is all these transactions get done on a, on a dual track. I remember when we were doing the IPO for Yeti Coolers a few years ago, they were basically up for sale until the night before they did the, the IPO. So what you want to do is build a business that has that optionality. We could sell to Starbucks, we could sell to Nestle, but if they don't want to buy it, you know, it's attractive to the public markets. Right now, to be attractive to the public markets, you got to be a profitable business, right? A few or 18 months ago, that wasn't really the case. You had pre-revenue companies IPOing at $2 billion valuations. But now it's it's we've gotten away from that that sum. But but our position is you know, we want the business to be able to IPO. We want it to be able to be sold, uh, and we're trying to get to that call it exit event or liquidity event for our investors in 2026. That's the promise we've essentially made to our investors since back in 2017. We gave ourselves about nine years to to get there. And a lot of the time frame has to do with what, what is, what does it take to get to kind of maximum value, uh, at least at that point, like, for example, you know, when you buy coffee farms, there's a development period before it's at optimal production. You know, if you're adding more farms on when you get to like that 2026 20, point, you really want a lot of production and being, you know, um, uh, kind of kind of as, as optimized as, as you possibly can add on additional businesses like the things that we're doing with the byproducts so you get those high revenues high profitability moving more from the green coffee where we're focused now to uh, roasted coffee which is what you're used to buying in the, the supermarket so that vertical integration takes time etc but the idea is 2026, you know, basically be allowing for or having conversations with potential buyers, uh, but also preparing for the the IPO of the business in the U.S. And we're targeting one of the big exchanges, it'll be the, the the New York Stock Exchange or or Nasdaq. Okay, what talk about risks for a minute? So Columbia has yeah. a, I mean, you know, as well known for coffee as they are in some ways on the downside for you know the drug yeah. trade and cocaine in the sure. past. And I know there's been some discussion warning about you know Colombia uh, being a narco state and all of that stuff from the U.S. Attorney General. What about political risk? You're you're all in in one country. It, what is the political risk, or have you forecasted that? Do you have any sense of it, or just being on the ground there? Like, what what is your take on? on on that yeah politically you know what we see is we just had a new president elected in in june last year the first left-leaning president in the history of the, the country pretty much been a call it right-wing conservative country for extended period of time the election was super close but the left-leading candidate won but similar macro events are kind of impacting what's going on i think from a political standpoint so just like in the US, you have a lot of inflation in Colombia. A lot of that inflation is caused by the fact that the country has gotten away from agriculture, particularly in 
um, kind of prime food areas. So like uh, rice, corn, those, those kind of areas that affect you know, a lot of the, the food products that you eat. But essentially, I think what we're seeing on a political standpoint is agriculture being basically the prime focus along with clean energy from, from the new government. Now you got to do it responsibly. You know, it's got to be kind of, you're, you're, you're doing right by your employees. You're doing right by the environment. Uh, but what we're seeing is basically a tremendous amount of support from the, from the government. Last year, we got the award from the Colombian Congress for best innovation in agriculture uh, here in, in Colombia. So we're seeing a lot of, of support. We opened the second of our two processing facilities in October. We had members of the Colombian Senate, Congress people here. We had the governor for the state where we're located. I think they see the, again, it's the national product of the country and, and it's been lacking in investment domestically and internationally for an extended period of time. So people take pride in the product. And I think they're proud to see a lot of people, especially internationally, taking a bet on the industry and the people. Uh, so we're getting a lot of, I guess, pats on the back for, for bringing a lot of, of money into the industry and really growing something that people are proud of. In, in the town itself, you know, now you have roads improving, you have schools improving. It sounds like silly things, but, you know, like school uniforms that they never really had, uh, rising home values in the areas that we're operating, increased tax revenues for the, uh, the governments that we're operating. So everybody's happy to see, I, I won't say everybody because it can't be 100%, but, you know, the people who matter are, are, are happy, I think, with the, uh, what we're bringing to the the country from a foreign investment standpoint, and the impact it's having on on the local people. Now, one program we're really proud of is this year we'll we'll plant about 2.5 million new trees on the coffee farms. That requires a huge greenhouse operation to grow the seedlings and get them ready for planting. All of the greenhouse is managed through a uh, our single mothers, heads of heads of households program. So there's a local organization uh, that if you're a single mother, you know, head, head of the family you can affiliate with, and then they help you find employment. So our entire greenhouse operation is managed by the single mothers. So things like that, where you're doing business in the in the right way, is is getting the I think attention that we that we want to. Everybody wants to see more jobs, people take care of, less people were dependent on the government for, for, for their livelihoods. So I, th I think we're doing things in a productive way that we're, we're proud of there, for sure. Does, well, does a left-leaning government, though, lead to, um, to your point, like there's always benefits value, benefits to either side, right? The, you know, yeah. the right there's benefits, left side. But, you know, one of the things you talked about, you know, uh, roads, infrastructure, investment, and that seems to be more probably a left-leaning agenda, right? Like that, I think anyway. But along with that becomes so, come social programs, healthcare, uh, uh, minimum, minimum wage reform, um, pensions, all of that. 
does a left-leaning regime put pressure on what you're describing as a already maybe tight labor market or or diminishing labor market because of the move toward more of an urban urban setting in this generation? I don't know. Any thoughts on that? I think it, I think by increasing the the wages, you know, we'll see a wage increase here. Um, that that I guess gives people the ability to stay in these in these areas if they're earning a fair wage. I mean, we're, we're basically the only ones who pay employees like actual benefits. <laughs> it would take things we take for granted. Again, I'm sure you've seen this in in the Dominican. I'd imagine those sugar farmers that you saw are you know they're not. Four dollars getting health, health right, yeah. and, and no, and no healthcare in place for that. Yeah. No workers' compensation, these kinds of things. So that that drives our, our our costs up, but we also get the offsetting benefit of, uh, you get all these incentives to invest in in technology. You also have because of the I would say historical conservative nature of the country. I think a lot of the opportunities that are coming to us right now from a buying perspective are because of the uncertainty around what does it look like for the government? What does the government mean to me? Maybe I should get some cash and not have land. And whether I, I don't think that's rational, but it, again, it's, you know, what's the opportunity that we can find in the uncertainty that's, that's going on? Um, so I think some of the acquisitions are coming to us because of that uncertainty as well. So, you know, what does it mean for the overall business if taxes increase on, by the way, the tax increases are still like put us at the level below what companies would be paying in the, in the U S. So when people hear tax increases, they think it's like, Oh, we're going to 60%. It's like, no, we're going to 15 (laughs) for, for, uh, for, for for dividends, you know, so lower than what we're seeing in the U S and in many cases. So it's all that, you know, let's operate within the opportunity we're given, try and maximize it. You know, we're also at a very favorable time with the strength of the U.S. dollar against against the peso, but, you know, many foreign currencies. So like the same, when we started, we started the business, $1 was equal to about 3,000 Colombian pesos. Wow. Right now, $1 is equal to about 5,000. 40, 4,700, depending on when you, when you listen to this, but the pricing has not really changed. You know, another characteristic of Latin America, I would say is the time value of money is not something people really think about. They want a specific price. You give them that price, you can give it to them over the course of 10 years, but they got their price. There's, there's that, there's that dynamic. So essentially everything that we're buying now is substantially less expensive than it was even a few years ago but the pricing overall hasn't really changed from what we're what we're seeing in the market so i'd say it's maybe a nature of this kind of being entrepreneurial and 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 operating in a, in a business climate but the uncertainty creates the opportunity is my is my takeaway so you know if it's okay this low this this family farm is going to have increased labor costs because of the government now they become an acquisition target for us and we can buy them at a at a great price Mm, makes sense okay no i get that 
Uh, other risks, I was just thinking about this as we start to wrap up here, but other risks, because I think about uh, drought or COVID happen. I mean, it sounds like that didn't really yeah. stop the ball in motion, but like, what are other risks that you, that you think about from a standpoint? I mean, it's coffee. Coffee is yeah. like alcohol. People are always going to drink coffee. People are always going to drink alcohol. So I get that, but just the dynamics, I, maybe there's something in the past. Has there been like a major down season because of some issue in the history of Colombian coffee, but Whatever it is, like what other risks are out there to the ability to continue to grow in that market? Agriculture, always you have to think about weather. That's one that you can, you know, fluctuate year to year. Sometimes you have drier seasons and that usually leads to increased production. The last year and a half or so, we've been having uh, La Nina, which is the weather patterns coming in from the the Pacific, which has led to more rain here. So we've seen production in the country dropping some, um, mm. but it's also driving up prices. It, the weather, what happens in coffee prices really depends on what's going on in Brazil. Is there a drought in Brazil? If there's a drought in Brazil, global prices go up. So it's kind of, it's almost like watching the weather in, uh, in Brazil, but then it's also, okay, we have to diversify away from just selling kind of commodity products. So, you know, if you can take one coffee cherry and it goes from a penny and becomes four because you're turning the cherry into alcohol, that hedges you away from, from falling prices or, you know, down production. If you can sell coffee as roasted coffee versus on a commodity basis as, as green coffee, you know, again, you're, you're realizing more benefit from that same from that same raw material. So it's, you know, thinking about whether buying farms at the right elevation, all the science around climate change and, and what's to come over the next 40 to 50 years, say coffee at below 1400 meters is gonna be a challenge. So we try to buy farms at the, at the only the right elevations based on what we expect into the long term. You know, the goal is not, we get to 2026 and the business is over and the farms go away, you know, trying to build something beyond that and, and, and more lasting. Uh, so it's, it's managing the weather from the fertilization standpoint, um, all of these kind of factors that go into, into growing, uh, but the weather's definitely, you know, a, a primary driver of a lot of the decision, decision-making that we undertake. Makes sense. I know for me, uh, again, I'm an investor at full disclosure, and there's a bunch of GoBundance people at over a hundred of them, I think that have invested in, in yes. coffee, right? What has been yep. the, what has been the number one reason why that you've been given? I mean, you know, I guess amongst any investor, but you know, it's a GoBundance podcast. So we'll go with some of the GoBundance guys or gals that have invested with you. What, why, why are, why are people investing? Uh, what do they see? What is the, what is the thing that there is? It just, Hey, it's cool. It's a coffee company or it's a GoBundance guy. Yeah. We love them or whatever. Right. What's some of the what's some of the, the the feedback you've gotten as to why somebody has decided to invest with you from the GoBundance side? Everybody wants to make money. <laughs> they see the uh, Duh. I think yeah, I, that's that's the name of the game. I think they see the opportunity of you know it's a it's a business that has you know the the U.S. headquarters, so there's a comfort there from the legal standpoint, tax standpoint, etc. They see the dominant kind of market position that we've been building. I think they see the path forward to an IPO or a sale. You know, we're looking at big returns on 
big multiples on on capital. Such, such as what? What are the multiples? Right now, we're in our our Series C funding round. We started with twenty five million of equity. We have about three million left to go for anybody who still wants to participate. Right now, we're trying to hit eleven x on on capital that's coming in right now in that. 2026 exit. So 100,000, we're trying to do over, over a million. I think wait, wait, 11, 11 X on new capital on new capital. Yeah. So what does that mean for old capital? You'll be doing better. Like your, your price. <laughs> I, I'm trying to, trying to get you to 13. That's my, my mental, my mental target. Well, is that uh, just give me a set. That's, that's a massive multiple in my mind. Maybe I'm wrong though, but can, do you have any, any sort of precedent or sense of you know i mean because again look the model's being proven right like as an investor i think it was initially 7x honestly that sounded big to me like you know what 4x is great i'll take 4x whatever but i saw the business model um i understood what you were trying to do or what green coffee's trying to do um to your point i like that it's u.s based and and to be honest with you i talk to people that i are to me more savvy investors than i am that are good that's the beauty of being a community like abundance like hey talk to me. Why did you, or even why didn't you for some people? Right. And I got, sure. I got really good feedback overall. I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to go ahead and invest my money here. Um, but honestly, seven X sounded really good. If it could hit it, you know, 150 would get you about a million bucks. Right. If you hit seven X, but yeah, but I still thought, well, yeah, whatever, I'll, I'll take half of that. That's fine. But now we're talking 11 X on new shares, right. On new yeah. share and 13 X for somebody like me who invested early. Is that normal? Like, cause your trajectory is there, right? Like, Hey man, check yeah. the box. You've doubled up the the second largest uh, uh, coffee producer in the country. It's not like you're flailing. Like there's there's progression. So is that kind of what you've seen? 12, 11, 13 X for an yeah. exit. I mean, it, uh, maybe it sounds too good to be true, but the numbers say uh, that we, that we can get there. I mean, you start out by having a reasonable buy-in valuation, right? So you know, we've raised about. $56 million of, of capital to date. Uh, we're still pricing the business at about, about 90 million. So a very reasonable kind of increase to just literally pure cash and, and, and assets. Like you mentioned, you know, we've had hundred go abundance guys invest. 10 of them have come down here. Everybody who's come has, has liked what they've seen, but the really the big differences, the big drivers since, since you invested are, all everything we're doing in the byproduct business that adds tons of, of value, uh, everything that we're doing in the roasted coffee space. And if we hit the numbers that we're looking at, you're looking at a billion dollar plus company just by getting to the right net income multiple. So how do we do that? You know, if you look at the S and P 500 over the last, over the last 50 years, the multiple of price to earnings is 20 X. All right, so we need to basically build a $50 million company from an, from an earnings perspective. Our growth trajectory is there. We need to execute. We really need to with the, with the alcohol and the, and the roasted coffee. But like by the time this comes out, we'll have given you guys the audited financials for the year, 10.1 million in revenue, 4.7 million in, in pre-tax earnings. So it's, we're, we're, we're going in the right direction. The other thing that I think probably you like and a lot of the GoBonus guys like is you have a very heavy asset base and you have you know an actual business that's earning profit 
you know, that th those are other other key drivers, but just the, I think the potential is there and, and everybody who comes sees the operation, meets the team, uh, follows along what we're doing, seems to be pretty, pretty enthusiastic, but it's always an accident. The, the, your, your question about what's the biggest risk factor is, are you guys executing appropriately? Right. Um, and, and that's what we're on top of, of every day. You can't control all these external factors. Does it rain today? Does it rain tomorrow? But how do you manage, pivot, respond, uh, deal with all those things to build the kind of company that we're that we're talking about. But but it's sounds like big numbers, but it's 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 really not that that far off. You have companies like if you look at some of the other call it coffee companies out there that have, even though they're in different spaces, that have gone public in the last few years. So we saw a company last year go public, one million dollars in revenue, nine million dollar loss and they reached a hundred million dollars on the on the, in the stock market hundred million dollar market cap you know you have companies like uh, black rifle that are going public at like 1.7 billion dollar valuations but have never made any money you know this year we'll make almost five million dollars uh, of, of pure of pure profit so it's a completely different um, strategy but we want that the business to be sound and and operate and we keep bringing more investors in because there's just so much more we can do with that capital. You know, if we get to the largest Arabica coffee producer in the world, now you've created a business that's maybe of interest to a Starbucks or a Nestle to buy because you're materially shifting the amount of Colombian coffee that's going to their channels, right? Mm -hmm. You have control over that. You build an alcohol company, you become interesting to a Diageo of the world that's trying to scoop up trying to scoop up brands. You build a, ro a roasted coffee company, you're creating something that has that kind of sustainability story, market presence that becomes attractive from a retail standpoint. So it's putting all these pieces together. It's a big task, definitely, but but I think we can I think we can get there for for our investors. That, yeah, that's, no, that's, hey, uh, and, what I stay awake at night thinking about. <laughs> no, I get it, and I, I, you know, too good to be true isn't isn't where I was going with it, but um, but I get why I, I wasn't meaning that. I was just like, wow, that's awesome. Sure. I just don't. Again, my small brain. I don't know. I don't know precedent, but you just gave a lot of stats and data that make a lot of sense to me. So it's like, sure. all right, game on. Let's go after it. Sure. And like I said, sure. we've seen the progression. I love the updates. You know, I get I get frequent updates, obviously, from you uh, via email, uh, YouTube videos, all of that stuff. I love kind of just see. I just got the one that said, "Hey, we just doubled up the number two uh, number two uh, coffee company in Colombia." So, um, yeah, man, it's been fun watching it, and I uh, I hope uh, I hope for all that you say is going to happen to happen. Of course, as an investor, <laughs> me too, me too. I hope I your audience it. likes coffee. I hope your audience likes coffee too. It was, uh... it was funny. I don't. My wife does, though, so I went after. <laughs> It, but um <laughs> all right more most important i mean uh, all of this amazing just on on this uh most important question is going to be um uh, uh, is this is it possible for the bills to get past the bengals and the chiefs this season is this the year i don't think so i don't think so i don't either <laughs> unless they do I, something uh, crazy i don't either what do they need what do they what do we what do we need bills nation bills mafia what do we need have to be tougher. They played the Bengals in the playoffs, and and it was watching. It was watching high school a high school team play against Alabama. You know, it was just like man to man. 
uh, especially on the line of scrimmage, just absolutely got got dominated. So I don't know how you got to get you got to get bigger, you got to get stronger, you got to get you got to get tougher. So I, I hope they can, I hope they can do that, or be mad enough for a, a sixty minute game to pull something out. But so these guys just got they got they got pummeled at home with all the momentum. You had like you know the 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 injury to uh, Demar Hamlin that kind of like fueling the, the team at the same time. And then you just go out there and it's just a man versus a, a boy getting pushed around. It was, that's, that's hard to, uh, that's hard to fix. That's hard yeah. to fix. Adam, where can people learn more about you, Green Coffee, if they're looking to invest, anything like that? Where can people get more information? Yeah, go abundance. Guys can always find me in the, in the Facebook group. Uh, if anybody wants to reach out directly, Email is adam.j at legacy-group.co. Love to always connect with more people. Anybody interested in Columbia? Anybody interested in investing with us? Like I said, we're wrapping up the Series C funding round. A couple million dollars left. Uh, but anybody who's it's a good fit for now, wants to know more, follow along in the future. Love, love to connect. And, and of course, if anybody's down in Columbia, <laughs> to, to find me or look for recommendations. Sure. Now, if uh, if somebody's outside, we have a lot of listeners that are not GoBundance members, but are accredited. Uh, use that email yes. or website. They should go check out. What um, where, where should they where should they go? Yeah, emails emails good. If you want to get some more information on the on the business, both DCC Legacy Group, the other portfolio companies we have, Legacy dash group dot co and, and as you mentioned all of our investors have to be accredited if you're looking at the coffee investment we have hundred hundred thousand dollar minimums perfect appreciate it man it's always fun connecting with you always fun chatting now we're doing it from thank from, you sir from the southern part of the world or well southern part yes. of the hemisphere so <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy I, I, life's interesting it is. i don't know how <laughs> appreciate it we'll talk soon thanks again 